Well, good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms. I'm glad you made it out in this dreary, wet day. I had a problem getting up this morning. I don't know about you guys, but my wife still isn't up, I don't think. I'm not sure. <laughs> don't tell her I turned her in. Anyway, uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. If you have your Bibles with you, great. If not, you should find one you, uh, that you can use in one of the chair racks down around you. Acts chapter 5. Just so we all know what's happening here, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, uh, and it's a study of this first century document called Acts that records how the early church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say, uh, today went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And if you were here last week, then you remember, hopefully you remember, that we saw, uh, we saw how uh, after the apostles Peter and John were threatened by the religious elite in, in Jerusalem and told not to speak or teach about Jesus anymore, and they threatened them. We saw how, um, how the church got together and prayed, and they asked, they asked God for courage. They said, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And, um, and after they prayed, we're told that the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke with uh, the word with, uh, with, of God with boldness. And, um, and then we noted how... Uh, we noted how that that God-given courage didn't simply impact what they said, it impacted how they lived with ridiculously courageous generosity. We were told that all the believers were one in heart and mind and no one claimed of any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. In fact, the text, the text gives us an example of a guy named Joseph. Uh, he was a Levite from Cyprus. Apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. It was an incredible act of generosity. It was the very opposite of what happens next. In chapter 5, verse 1, we're told this. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back some of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you, what made you think of doing such a thing? You, you've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in. Uh, the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events. Okay, so uh, this is about the time that you turn to the guest you brought with you today and say, "I'm really sorry." <laughs> okay, go ahead. You can do it. I know. You know. I'm, you say, "I'm really sorry, man." Last week, last week Ray was talking about prayer, and courage, and unity, and compassion, and now he is. Here he is talking about people dropping dead in a church service. So 
Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Um, It's a weird story. It's a weird story, and uh, I admit that. And I'll tell you what, over the last few weeks, uh, as I've read through it a number of times, I just kept asking myself, why is this event here? Why is this recorded? You know, what is its significance? I mean, the author of this book, a first century Greek doctor named Luke, uh, certainly had a lot of material to draw from. You know, lots of firsthand witnesses and accounts of important events in the life of the early church. And like any biographer, uh, he got to decide what to include in his historical document and what to leave out. And so the inclusion of, of, of these stories, and in this one in particular, isn't random. I mean, Luke must have had an agenda. Uh, he must have had a reason, a good reason, to record the things that he did. And so why this one? Right? Why this one? And the more I reflected on it, the more, the more it began to make sense to me. See, the church had grown very rapidly from a handful of Jesus' followers in chapter 1 to over 8,000 believers. And the apostles had experienced very little opposition, very little resistance from those in authority until chapter 4, right? When the church and its message of Jesus met some serious opposition. Because suddenly there was this hostility from, from those, uh, the authorities, those in power, and deliberate acts of injustice and persecution were beginning to take place. In other words, the church, its leaders, its mission, it was, it was now being threatened by outside forces. But here in chapter 5, there's another threat and potential impediment to the young church's life, health, and growth. And it came not from outside the church, but from inside. And Luke, I think, wants his readers to see that. Consider the greater context here. One of the things that Luke stresses at the end of chapter 4 is how grace and generosity go hand in hand. Remember, he gives an explanation of what was happening uh, with the church. He said, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, all these Christians, that there were no needy persons among them. In other words, the ridiculous generosity demonstrated in and through the church, it didn't flow out of religious ritual or guilty obligation. It flowed out of the grace of God that men and women were experiencing uh, in Jesus. As we say around here, grace changes things. It changes people. And, and, you know, for these earliest believers, it, it changed how they viewed their money, how they viewed their resources. The text says no one claimed any of their possessions was their own anymore. But they shared everything that they had. And the society around them had never seen anything like this. Jacques Ellul, the um, well-known French philosopher, law professor, and Christian theologian, in his book Money and Power, summarizes the events of Acts 4 this way. He writes, Money loses all reason for existence and all power over us as soon as grace enters our heart. Has grace entered my heart? Has it entered yours? How do you know? According to Luke, one of the direct results of the grace of God at work in his people is that we give generously to the care, uh, for the care of others and the needs of others and to advance the cause of Christ in our world. Or put another way, put another way grace, is not, grace is not some abstract theological concept. It's a spiritual reality that, that cues believers to action. Grace has implications. Grace leads you somewhere. Grace inspires generosity and creates a human connection and authentic community grounded in real needs being being met by real people in real ways. And see, that's why the story of Ananias and Sapphira is in the text, because their attitudes and actions 
um, seriously threatened this, this grace-filled, beautifully generous, and spiritually authentic community of believers. And Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to realize that healthy, authentic Christian community is founded on truth. And so let's review what happens to this couple. Because at the end of four, again, we're told about this guy Joseph, right, from Cyprus. He, he had a field. He, he only sold it. He gave all the money to the church. In fact, he, put it, he came and he put it right at the apostles' feet. In other words, he, he offered it publicly as an act of wor- worship, which was the tradition at the time. And it was a big deal because in the ancient Near East, land was often inherited. Uh, it served as a primary source of family income, and therefore a person's overall a wealth was tied very closely to land ownership. And so for anyone to sell land or even a portion of it and then give the proceeds away was huge. I mean, it was exceptional. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. The text says from time to time it happened, right? From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and gave the money to the apostles. Because understand, everyone in the church was giving generously, everyone. But this particular individual make made a remarkable personal financial sacrifice to help meet the needs of this believing community. And so grateful were the apostles for his, his kindness that the, they give this guy Joe a nickname. They call him Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. Because, and they gave it to him because here's a, here's a person who wasn't, who wasn't just ridiculously generous, but radically free, free from being defined by his wealth and material resources. And it wasn't like Christians in the first century didn't need money. I mean, they did. It's just that believers were finding this freedom from being enslaved by it. And so following Joseph's example, Ananias and Sapphira, they decided to do the same thing. They sell a piece of property, and, and, to, and they, wanted, they were going to give the money to the church. But the last minute, they changed their minds. And we're told that it, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, and then he brought the rest and publicly, publicly laid it at the apostles' feet. And when he does that, Peter openly confronts him. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal? Now, we're not told how Peter knew what was going on. Uh, I mean, did he get some kind of inside information about the sale and the price from someone telling him about it? Or, or did God's Spirit give Peter this miraculous insight? Um, it seems to me that that is, a, that is indeed what happened. But whatever the case, Peter confronts Ananias. But why? Why? Was Ananias required to give all or any of the money to the church? No. Giving was completely voluntary. And Peter makes that clear, right? He says, dude, the property was yours. No one forced you to sell it. And when you sold it, uh, the money was yours. We didn't ask you for any of it. You were free to give or not give as much or as little as you wanted. See, often when reading this account, uh, we, we immediately assume that Ananias and Sapphira's problem, their offense, their sin was greed. But that's not the case. Uh, they were making a voluntary donation. Um, we don't know what the amount was. We don't know what the percentage was. But that doesn't really matter because the problem wasn't that they failed to be as generous as they could have been or should have been. The offense, the sin, was deception, you see. Peter says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. 
Here's my Ray case summary. In contrast, direct contrast to the humble, honest generosity of Joseph, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell property, they keep a chunk of the money for themselves, which was fine, but then they go and they pretend that they were giving it all, see? They misrepresented themselves to the church, to the apostles, to God. They wanted credit for doing something without the pain and inconvenience of actually doing it. Their offering was more about benefiting themselves and their reputation in the community than benefiting the community itself, the church. It was a shared deception, hypocrisy driven by arrogance and a craving for honor, recognition, and approval. But here's the thing. You can fool human beings most of the time, but you can never fool God. He sees through such deception. Listen, hypocrisy uh, is an evil and destructive force that can very easily creep into the, the church community because, let's face it, as, as, as sinful, broken human beings, we're all, all tempted to try and look better than we are and to know more than we do, to seem more pious than everyone else around us. I mean, to varying degrees, we, we crave the recognition and the approval of others. And many of us, And the church have come to think that the way we measure our spirituality is by how well we control our outward sins and convince others, and maybe even convince ourselves, that we are are less broken than we really are. And as we see here, the adversary of God, our adversary, will exploit that longing for approval. And he'll exploit it because he knows that arrogant, self-serving hypocrisy can and will destroy authentic community, which is founded on truth and humility. Truth and humility. Peter says to Ananias, what were you thinking, man? What were you thinking? You haven't just lied to us. You've lied to God. And with that, the guy drops to the floor and dies. Some young men who were there, they come up front, they wrap up his body, they take him out, they bury him. And a few hours later, his wife, Sapphira, shows up. Now, they may have been looking for her to try to tell her what happened. We don't know. They didn't have cell phones or text messaging or Foursquare to know where everyone is all the time, you know. They didn't have that. So uh, they may have been trying to find her, but they didn't. And so she shows up, clearly unaware of what happened. And here's the deal. You know, Peter, in all fairness, Peter isn't about to let her suffer for what her husband did. So he asks a simple question. He says, and he's hoping for honesty. He says, tell me. Is the price you and Ananias got for the land, is this the price? And she could have said, no, that's not all of it. We kept some of it. Okay, fine. But that's not what she does. Instead, with the same self-serving, approval-seeking hypocrisy, she lies right to him. She says, yeah, that's the price. And Peter responds, he says, how could you? How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid they're going to carry you out as well. And at that moment, the text says, she fell down at his feet, and she died. It's a tragic story. I was telling my son, Corey, last week what I was speaking on today, and as I was telling him, he looked at me and said, really? I said, yeah, why? He goes, so there's going to be some smiting going on Sunday. There's going to be some smiting going on. I'm like, and it made me laugh. You know, I'm like, oh, and then it made me think, well, no, no, I don't know. Because, I mean, nowhere in the verses do we get an explanation of what exactly happens, right? 
I mean, Peter doesn't, doesn't call or pray for the death of Ananias and Sapphira. He just, he just honestly confronts their deception and their hypocrisy. And, and clearly, there's no lightning bolts shooting out of heaven, striking them down, smiting them, as we would say, or some of us would say. So what, what was the deal? And I suppose, I suppose it's entirely possible that natural causes were fully to blame, right? That's plausible. I mean, maybe, maybe the, shock of, maybe the shock of being publicly exposed as hypocritical liars triggered massive myocardial infarctions. You know, coincidental, fatal heart attacks, both people, boom, they drop and, and they're dead. Maybe. We don't know for sure, but whatever the case, whatever the actual cause of death was, the apostles in the church seemed to interpret the fate of these two as the direct judgment of God in dealing with their deceit and their hypocrisy. And so this is where some, some people really, you know, they really hedge, they get a little bit uncomfortable, and they, they have a problem, and they'll say, well, look, seriously, divine judgment? Come on. That's harsh. I mean, we live in a progressive culture. Haven't we moved beyond this primitive notion of an angry deity to that of a more loving God? With the assumption, the underlying assumption being that love and anger are antithetical. But they're not, Right? If you think carefully about it, anyone who has the capacity to love must also have the capacity for anger. And it's not despite their love that they can be angry, but because of their love. You know what I'm saying? For example, if someone you really care about, someone you deeply love, a friend, a family member, is ruining their life by, by way of unwise, unhealthy choices and destructive behaviors, if that doesn't make you angry then it's hard for you to say you really love the person, right? Because if you don't care, then you don't care. And who in their right mind claims, well, I can't really get mad at them, I can't get angry at them because, well, that's, that anger is antithetical to love. It's primitive. It's regressive. That's nonsense. No one says that. Neither do we say it's wrong of me to desire justice to be meted out toward anyone who mistreats the people I love. Here's my point. Moral beings have the capacity to be loving and angry at the same time and to rightly uh, desire justice. And what's true for us is true for the God who created us. And so people say, well, okay, but, but why were these two people judged so severely? I mean, aren't we all, aren't we all at some point or another guilty of the same deception, the same hypocrisy, you know, with self-seeking approval prompting us to lie? Sure, we are. We all do it at some point or another. Well, then why, you know, why aren't more of us falling down dead in a church service? Well, first, I'm glad that that's not actually happening. <laughs> but secondly, the only thing I can point to is the grace of God. In the Old Testament, the psalmist says, The Lord is gracious, and he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And he doesn't treat us at times as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, those who revere him. Yet still some say, well, okay, I get that. I mean, I get God is gracious. But why was there, so why was there no grace demonstrated in Ananias and Sapphira's case? Now, ultimately, that question is left for God to answer. And I certainly don't assume to speak for him. 
But as I see it, grace was demonstrated. I mean, think about it. The church was in its infancy, and it was growing. It was thriving. The lives of thousands of men and women were being transformed in and through uh, the church. The unity, the love, the compassion, the generosity of this community was like nothing ever witnessed before. And when all, all of a sudden that gets threatened from inside, it seems that with love, God acts to keep the church from being destroyed. Ananias and Sapphira represented an insidious and evil cancer that threatened to infect the entire body at its most vulnerable moment in history. And so God graciously intervenes, and he makes a point, but he doesn't set a precedent. And for me, the overall, the overall resu- result of this was, is, is quite interesting. I mean, Whereas it could be argued that through their blatant lying and hypocrisy, Ananias and Sapphira showed absolutely no reverence or fear of God, twice we're told that a great fear seized all who heard what happened to them. A great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Translation, a deep, serious, and genuine respect and reverence for God permeated the people. His people. In fact, Luke goes on to say that Jesus' followers continued to meet together out in public, teaching about Jesus and worshiping God boldly. And I thought about that, and I realized how, you know, fear, reverence of God is an integral part of worship. And I know that for some who are familiar with the idea of an infinite, infinitely gracious God, this is a jarring realization, but it shouldn't be because God's grace only makes sense if and when we recognize the magnificence of his glory, his power, his justice, his holiness. I mean, that's what John Newton, pastor and poet John Newton, uh, was getting at over 200 years ago when he wrote these famous lyrics, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." In other words, Practically speaking, as one's fear of God, one's reverence for God increases, so does their sense of his love and grace because we understand more fully who he is, what we deserve, what he has done for us, what we are rescued from. Now, I once heard the fear of God defined as awe mixed with intimacy. And that makes sense to me because we're invited into the closest possible relationship with God through Jesus But this intimacy must never overshadow the majesty of who God is. In his book, Surprised by Grace, a pastor and author, Tullian Chavijan, explains it this way. He says, what you choose to attribute ultimate worth to, what you choose to worship, depends on what you fear the most. If you fear loneliness, you worship relationships. You depend on them to save you from a meaningless life. If you fear not being accepted or esteemed, you worship your social network, the way you look, the car you drive, or the amount of money you make. You depend on these things to validate your existence. If you fear insignificance, you end up worshiping your career or your accomplishments. Behind everything you worship is some fear that without this person or thing, you would be lost. We are all worshipers. But God is the only reliable object of worship because nothing and no one extends these things like God does in the person and work of Jesus. Or perhaps perhaps another way to think about it is that no one 
No one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God, with that fear and grace leading some to worship. And I say some because, uh, because look at what happens next in the text. As Luke keeps writing in chapter 5, he tells us that the Christians in Jerusalem were continuing to meet out in public together, worshiping God together. And then he says this, he says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that sound, that's confusing to me. Although the church was highly regarded, no one dared join them, but more and more people believed and joined them. I was like, what? what? Which was it? Which was it? Well, it was both. What Luke is telling us is that while the reputation of the church, her love, her compassion, the generosity of Christians was very positive, many of those in Jerusalem also heard stories of divine judgment, personal accountability, and shameless authenticity, and they wanted nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. In short, no half-hearted, partially interested pretenders risked identifying with the church out of fear. But those who understood and grasped the the entire story, the whole story, the good news of God's love and grace uh, in Jesus, they believed and became members of this vibrant, beautiful community, and they joined in the reverent worship of and service to God. You realize the same is true today, right? Many people consider becoming a follower of Jesus. They kind of flirt with the idea of being a a part of the church, a member of the church. But in our secular rise and highly individualistic culture, many are afraid of true community, true accountability, true commitment, true authenticity. And while they highly regard the church, essentially they reject the grace of God and refuse to become intimately part of the church. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me how from the, from the very beginning, the church has been repulsive to some, while at the same time, compellingly attractive to others. Well, what is it to you? As I mentioned earlier, as a biographer, you know, Luke, Luke, the author of the book, he got to decide what stories and events to include in the document. It was his decision, and he chose to record for us this sad, strange tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira. Why? For this reason. To help us realize how the life, the growth, and the spiritual health of the Christian church can be equally as threatened by outside evil as by evil within. And my prayer today is that God will protect us as a church from both. Let's pray. Our Father, I, I, I can't help but think each of us, as we hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira, there's a part of us that's quick to judge them. There's a part of us that, want to say, that wants to say, how could they be so hypocritical and deceitful? But if we slow ourselves down for a second and we're honest about it, the fact is we all find ourselves doing similar things at some point or another in life because as human beings, we all, we all long for approval. We, all, we, we, we tend to protect our reputation in, in attempts to look better than we are, to know more than we do, to, to come across more religious and pious and 
spiritual than those around us. We all do it. And what, that, what happens, Lord, is that, that, that hypocrisy kills community. And you've called your church to the truth and to authenticity, to be a place where we can be ourselves and we can acknowledge our failures and our shortcomings. And we can find, we can find forgiveness, we can find acceptance, where there's no pretending, there's no pretense. We all acknowledge we're on equal ground before Jesus. We're all flawed and broken, all in need of your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to, to avoid that, the temptation to deceive and, and with hypocrisy present ourselves as something that we're not or someone we're not. Because the reality is while we may be able to fool one another, we cannot, we cannot fool you. You know our hearts, you know our minds. You know whether we're loving and generous and kind or whether we're not. And so before you this morning, we simply, we acknowledge our need for you and for your grace that comes in Jesus. And we we acknowledge that, Lord, that you are our creator. We acknowledge your holiness, your justice, your righteousness. And out of reverence for you and because of the grace of Jesus, we worship you and thank you for the relationship that you offer us. And we say, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. May that be true of each of us this morning. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? I want to thank you all uh, for being with us this morning. And, you know, I hope you understand uh, what we're talking about here in terms of Christianity. Because you look at the early church and you look at how they changed their world, you know, through, through their, their love, the truth, the, the generosity, the compassion that the church showed. But understand, they didn't, they didn't do that in order to earn God's favor. See, that was the outpouring of, of the grace that they experienced because as we, as we always say grace changes things it changes people it changes us from the inside out that's what happened to the, the early Christians you know they came to faith in Jesus they experienced the grace of God and that freed them it freed them from greed it freed them from you know this, this longing for uh, approval it just it freed them to be themselves and it freed them to love and to give and uh, and that freedom, man, it was something that the world had never seen before. And it changed, it changed the world. And uh, our, our hope here is that we can be a, a very similar type of community where we're free to be ourselves. And we're not pretending and we're not trying to present ourselves as something we're not or, or someone we're not. Because in Jesus, it's level ground. We all need forgiveness, right? We all need the grace of God. And that grace comes in Jesus. We lived the life we could never live, died the death we deserve to die. And in him, we're forgiven and we're set free. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And if that's still a little confusing to you, talk to somebody you know from Parfi. Let them share with you their, their faith story. You can certainly come down following the service and talk to one of our prayer team folks that will be up here. But uh, we, hope you, uh, we hope you've made that commitment to Jesus and have experienced the grace of God. 
Uh, come back next week. We're going to continue the series. Uh, what we're going to see happen next is the kind of the persecution is going to get amped up a little bit for the early church. We're going to see how, um, how uh, they begin to handle that. I think you'll find it fascinating and helpful. So uh, come back and be with us next Sunday. Also, I want to thank um, Matt and the guys for being with us here again this morning. And um, I just want you to know... Uh, Matt just came out with a new CD, and so uh, if you're interested, he's got us a table in the back, and I appreciate these guys' love for Jesus and their gifts and sharing with us periodically. So uh, if you're interested, stop by and see them. They'll be in the back in the lobby, okay? In the meantime, have a, have a great Mother's Day, and let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. And now, Lord, I, I ask that um, as, as the church leaves the building, because really the church, it's, it's us, your people. It's not walls or bricks or mortar. It's us. And so as we leave this place, as we go out into, out into our world, to our jobs, to our families, to our neighbors, to our schools, wherever life takes us, I pray that we would, we would live lives of truth and honor, integrity. Your grace would overflow in us in such a way that, that our, what we say and how we live will point people to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what we want most. And so may your hand of strength and courage and protection rest on your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Happy Mother's Day. We'll see you next week.